Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a guest interview for you. Today's guest is Brad Kearns. Brad has been on the show a couple times in the past, and I've been on his podcast a few times as well. And I'm always interested in checking in with Brad because he is one of the more curious guys I know and has done what I consider a lot of cool variety of things over the course of his years in health, sport, nutrition, kind of all the things that I'm sort of interested in. Brad has been a professional triathlete. He's been a highly competitive speed golfer. He's gotten into other sports like just actual track and field things like high jump, things like disc golf, um, ultimate Frisbee, all sorts of different things. He's always trying something new or challenges about in a different way. And he's done it over a long time. He's in his fifties now. So I wanted to check in with Brad to see what he was up to training wise, fitness wise, nutrition wise, and just see what he's been tinkering around with. Um, on the nutrition front, he's done everything from high carb, kind of your standard endurance protocol to lower carb stuff. He's leaned animal-based product nutrition strategies in the past. And uh, I believe currently he's doing kind of a little bit more of a mixed diet, which uh, um, will be fun to see how he's matching that with his his new efforts and things like that. Because one of the th- interesting things I find with nutrition is for one, it's not a one size fits all. And then on top of it, there is a lifestyle factor too. So if you are a specific individual and you frequently change your lifestyle and the intensities and the programming of all of that, there may be different nutritional approaches that are better for you even versus just what works for the next person and you doing the same activity. So we dive into all sorts of stuff like that with, with Brad. Before we get rolling with him though, just a few quick announcements. I have a recording done and uploaded on the show Patreon page with Steve Magnus. Steve is a very well-known coach in endurance. He's more specializing in Olympic distance type stuff, but he's got an incredible story from being one of the most promising milers in high school to the point where he was ranked uh, internationally and ran a, a really fast time in high school, like a 401 mile. And even with all that promised, he never then ran a faster time after that. So we talk a little bit about why that was and what his thoughts are around that, but there is a lot of information around that on him. So we didn't dive too deep in that. I wanted to more specifically talk to Steve for a variety of other topics that I'm interested in. One was just his uh, his idea of like doing hard things and where that maybe fits at the individual level and the concept as a whole, uh, general programming and kind of the nuance within like what is you know, good population level advice versus what you actually want to do on an individual level. Once you start to learn about a runner, or if you're thinking of it from this lens, once you start learning more about yourself as a runner or a athlete, how do you change and make things more specific to you at the individual level versus maybe what the population recommendations would suggest you start at. Um, other topics we talked about, we dove into just like kind of metric overkill. We have so many gadgets and ways to kind of gauge fitness, recovery, different hydration statuses and things like that. I wanted to talk to Steve for someone who works with high level Olympic athletes. Where's the line? Is it individual or is it something that we can all kind of just say, Hey, this is how much data we should dive into, but pay on this. We're doing more harm than good. I was curious what his thoughts were that 
And then finally, we discussed a article that he wrote for The Atlantic a while back that dove into the topic of gender categorization in sport. It's a topic that I think has gotten more and more attention lately and is likely going to both create a lot of discussion, a lot of potential uh, conflict um, along with it. So uh, it's something that I think is worth unpacking and as a society in sporting things, we need to be open about making these discussions. So I wanted to get his take on why he was kind of right, why, why he wrote his article in the first place and you know what had, what the response was to it. Um, so that's that for um, upcoming episodes on the Patreon page right now. If you're interested in checking out the show Patreon page, it is a way to support the show. And for that, what you get is early release. So when I record these episodes with people, it usually takes... Um, couple to a few weeks sometimes to come out, especially if it's the guest episodes. Uh, so as you are waiting for those to come out, if you want to check them out early, you can get access to that through the show Patreon page. You also get ad-free, intro-free episodes. So if you're the person who's like, hey, I just want to cut right to the straight, right to the chase and get to the topic at hand, that's a great spot for it. You can find details for that by just heading over to the podcast landing page, which is just zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. On that landing page, you can also find other support options if you don't like Patreon. Um, you can also find details about all the previous episodes, links, notes, everything that kind of goes with those and kind of peruse through the catalog if you're looking for more episodes to check out if you haven't uh, been listening to them along the way. So that's the spot to go, zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. Uh, along those lines, if you want to support the show, but you want to do it in a different way, one way that works really well and helps out a ton is just sharing it. If you uh, have a social media platform or talk to friends and family about the podcast you're listening to, sharing that with them, with episodes you like, or the whole show if you uh, find someone that you think would be interested in checking out the topics that I cover on this podcast. So essentially what that does is it helps me grow the show and then allows me to make more episodes down the road. So whether you're liking and subscribing so you automatically get it downloaded or sharing those links with your friends, family, and followers on social media helps out a ton. Uh also, if um, you're interested in some coaching services, I got a wide variety of options from pre-made plans all the way to one-on-one -on -one coaching, including just consultations too. If you just want to hop on a call and chat about a topic, you can find all those at zachbitter.com. If you want to meet up and you're in the Austin area, definitely come check out the group run I host on Sunday mornings. Currently, we have a what is a pretty small group at 8 a.m. and then a larger group typically at 9 a.m., and we meet at Metz Park in Austin. So if you're visiting or you're a local, come check that out. We've got a variety of different paces, distances. Uh, you can bring your family, you can bring your pet, you can bring a bike, you can bring a stroller. There's all sorts of options for people who want to come and hang out, get a few miles in and chat about whatever topic. So um, if you want more details about specifics of that, because there are weekends where sometimes I'm out of town, in uh, the rare occasion where we don't hold a group run for whatever reason, holidays, weather, whatever, uh, you can check out date-to-date -date details on their Instagram page, which is just, which is just at outliersatx. All right. Um, one last thing before we get going. the One of HPO Podcast's primary sponsors this year are my friends at Element T Electrolytes. Element T is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means it's got science-backed electrolyte ratios with none of the junk, no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS. So each packet, they come in these really convenient little packets that have 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. 
I'll use one of those packets for about two liters of water based on a sweat test I got done. So I know I've got those right ratios dialed in. My favorite pack, my favorite flavors at the moment are I'll use uh, the chocolate flavor sometimes from their warm beverage line in my coffee in the morning before a workout. And then I'll usually go with like watermelon for uh, my, my cold beverage or my water mixture for that, whether I'm out on a workout or replenishing post-workout and things like that. Um, I actually just learned the other day that you can make electrolyte gummies. So I'm going to do this and try this out actually at the Rocky Raccoon 100 uh, this weekend as a way to kind of just have some extra electrolytes along for the ride in case I don't want to be trying to mix a packet or something. I just have like a little stash in a baggie along with me that if I need a little extra electrolytes and I have some water, I can pop one of those in and then wash it down with water without having to worry about the mixing. For those of you who have tried to eat while running or drink while running, you'll appreciate the fact that the fewer obstacles to get whatever you're trying to get in, the better. Um, so I'll report back on how that goes maybe down the road, but I'm excited to try those out. If you just Google electrolyte gummies or LMNT gummies on, um, on, uh, you know, the internet or whatever browser you use, the recipes will come up. So let me know what you think. If you try them out, if you are interested in trying out LMNT and you haven't done it before with a purchase, you can get a free sample pack, which gives you a free uh, packet of each of the flavors, their warm beverage, cold beverage, and then their fruity and their more spicy, savory options, and even plain options. So if you're interested in trying it out, but don't know which flavor you want yet, all you got to do is make your first order and select that free sample pack so that you kind of know which one's going to fit your lifestyle the best going forward. In order to get that, you got to go to them through this URL. It's drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. That link will be in the show notes as well as on the Human Performance Outliers podcast sponsor page, which is just zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. All right, let's check in with Brad Kearns. Brad, welcome back. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad to be an outlier. Who doesn't <laughs> want to be an outlier? How can you get cooler than that? Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's a fun world to live in. I think there's uh, I have this joke in my head. I think when that I need to have you come on the show at least every year or two because you're like the adult version of recess, where like if if I take my eyes off what you're up to for a year plus and then look back you're trying something different or doing something new in like the athletic world and the nutrition world or something like that. So it's like, all right, it's been a little over a year, better check in with Brad and find <laughs> out if he's still speed golfing, high jumping, sprinting, triathlon, or whatever, whatever it happens to be piquing your interest at the moment. Oh my gosh. What a, what a personality insight. I think you got me there, man. And, um, <laughs> you know, there's some things about consistency and patterns in life that are really great. And then I think we have to always try to thread that needle where you're going to explore, you're going to try to optimize. And um, I love Paul Saldino's line where he says, um, you know, we want to go from level seven to level nine or whatever, but how do we know we're not at level four yeah. <laughs> or, or or level eight or level nine? I mean, I, I feel great. And I, I look around and we see this disastrous decline into accelerated aging. That is the essence of it, it's normal today. And so my my quip about being an outlier, if we get serious for a moment, it's like, you better freaking be an outlier today because just look around and we're in, you know, disaster zone. 
And a lot of people aren't even awakened to it. They just think that turning 40 means you get a spare tire and you sit on the couch and watch the NFL, the most popular programming in the world on TV every year. And uh, boy, you know, devoting 11 hours of a weekend just to watch other people perform it might be normal, but for me, I'm, you know, I'm looking for fun, excitement, adventure, and, you know, pursuing peak performance goals forever that are hopefully age appropriate and circumstance appropriate. So you mentioned triathlon. That was a long time ago when I was out there training all day and putting in the, the 87 mile bike ride followed by the hour long swim, and then a quick jog, you know, doing the, doing the hardcore stuff. And I don't think that's a great thing to do uh, forever for me. So now I'm a sprinter, I'm a high jumper, and I have this total passion for a completely disparate athletic goal than what was in my past as an extreme endurance athlete. Maybe Zach Bitter will be a high jumper someday. Yeah. We don't know. People. You never know. <laughs> I probably won't be running 100 mile races forever. That's for certain. Yeah. So hopefully I'll leave a little in the tank for some high jumping at some point. Uh, I actually did some high jumping in middle school. Never to the degree at which it was like advised that I continue to do it, <laughs> but it was fun. It's a fun, it's definitely a fun, uh, kind of discipline. And, um, I was always interested in the decathlete, uh, folks when I was in college too, and kind of was able to see a little broader spectrum of the track and field world and just the variety of, uh, different workouts that you would do to kind of be sort essentially a jack of all trades is really interesting to me. Although, I'm sure in their mind, sometimes during the rigors of the season, it's just like playing whack-a-mole in terms of like, well, do I practice pole vault? Do I practice hurdles? Do I practice high jump? Do I, do I throw the shot put 1500? What is it? <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm thinking back to college when I was running at UC Santa Barbara and training there at the same track was a lot of world-class decathletes because they had a famous coach there, Sam Adams, yeah. including the current at the time world record holder named Jürgen Hingsen from uh, West Germany at the time, they called it. And he was, I believe, uh, you know, 6'6", 225, just a chiseled, you know, a moving Adonis. And we'd watch him train and he would just goof around for, you know, half an hour stretching. He'd grab a pole. He'd do a couple, you know, half speed pole vault approaches, uh, maybe go for another jog around the track. And then his girlfriend would show up. And he'd leave, you know, and we'd be <laughs> only halfway through our brutal interval workout where our hands and knees and we're just trying, you know, two more times 400. And then we go to 200s and then cool down and then stride. And um, that was his training. And it was pretty funny because clearly, yeah, obviously, he worked hard on a grand scheme. But these people that are at the highest level of talent and world performance, they have so much natural ability, but they also are very sensible and you don't see them puking on the side of the track as is romanticized in the movies. And mm. so, you know, an athlete that feels a little twinge, the, the sprinters are famous for this, where they'll be warming up for a meet and they'll say, yeah, my ham, hamstring doesn't feel quite right. And they're gone. They're out of the meet and they're, you know, going back and getting treatment. And I think, uh, especially in the endurance scene that we are both, you know, I come from and um, we've been around this ethos of pushing and struggling and suffering and being consistent and getting out there the next day and, and keeping your mileage up because you got a big race coming up four months from now. Um, that stuff has been indoctrinated to the extent that especially for the recreational athlete, it can really be counterproductive. So I like to look to the examples of these elite performers that are not crushing themselves like we might believe, but rather they're working well within their capabilities at all times. Yeah, it's interesting because I think 
where where the elites are what the elites are essentially doing is they're leaving a one or two reps in the tank and i think the hard part for the average person watching that is one or two left in the tank for the best in the world is also couched in 10 plus years of development mm -hmm. likely which got them to what they're currently doing versus what they started out doing and more people that kind of find themselves i think wearing themselves out in certain sports is because they're 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 puking at the side of the track they're wringing themselves dry they're not leaving anything in the tank and they're thinking that they got to do that not just once in a while but on a regular <laughs> basis and that's not sustainable um or good for adaptation either i mean there's a stress mm -hmm. recovery um balance that you're all looking for and that's going to be unique to the individual and the discipline and the background and all that stuff. So it's, uh, it becomes an individual puzzle as much as we'd like to make it a population formula at sometimes. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, if listeners think I'm sitting here lecturing you, I'm the first guy to raise my hand here. I'm recovering from foot surgery right now. Uh, and it was a bone spur on my heel Ooh. and clearly it represents a mistake in my training patterns, uh, where I'm doing these high jump workouts and sprint workouts, and I feel fine during the workout. I'm not an idiot go going out there and limping through mm -hmm. another rep. Everything feels great. It's warm. I'm warmed up. The foot feels good. I go and jump. I do another jump. I end up doing, you know, a, a bunch. And then the next morning I can't walk oh. or I'm, I'm, I'm hobbling down the hallway. Mm -hmm. And my surgeon had a great one-liner I want to share with all athletic-minded people. She said, uh, the tendons will fool you when they become inflamed. And so really the best time to assess one's condition, readiness to train, uh, state of injury recovery is first thing in the morning when you get out of bed and walk down the hall. And I'm like, wait a second, I've shuffled down the hall for the last 30 years. There, there hasn't <laughs> been a day when I'm bouncing down the hall first thing in the morning. First, I got to launch into my elaborate stretching mobility routine, right? But it's an interesting one that I'm going to remember forever because um, you can warm yourself up into it. And we know the athletes that are popping ibuprofen because their back is so tight and now it feels fine and they can go run their 10 miler. But these things are what you pay the price for later, especially when you're in the older age group. So if you're in the younger age groups listening to me, I was that guy that could clear through my hamstring problem in a week, but now the same thing might take three months. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, you hit it on the head. I had uh, Brody Sharp on here fairly recently and he's you know he's a physical therapist who really dives into the injury injury prevention side of things and one thing he said that I thought was like really interesting in terms of like returning from injury was essentially what you just said is like don't assess how you feel after that warm shower that mobility routine and 15 minutes into the workout in which your tendons and soft tissues are going to be loosest and warmest and probably feeling the best unless you're drive on quite a bit of impact in there wait until that point of the day that it's at its worst so what he said was if you have an issue like an ankle issue a calf issue a knee issue whatever happens to be remember when it was the worst when it started and mm -hmm. use that as your point of reference and as you start bringing movement back into your routine after whatever rehab or rest you need to do to let things settle down watch whether it's improving from that point forward versus regressing or stagnating. Because if it's stagnating or regressing, that means your load for that particular area is still too high for the recovery to take place. And I thought that was like a really interesting gauge because, you know, we have all these different things of like, oh, you can train on it if it's this out of 10 on the perceived pain threshold. And it's like, well, 
I get a little cringe at that sometimes because it's like, what is a three of a 10 to me versus three out of 10 to somebody else? Or, mm. you know, I could easily talk myself into being a three out of 10 when it's really a six out of 10 because I really want to kind of get things back going. <laughs> and that's sort of a, a mentality that oftentimes makes us kind of look backwards on what we decided to mm. do and call ourselves idiots. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we have to look at the psychology here and one's deepest purpose for participating and if it is indeed to just go and blow off some pent up uh, negative energy from a stressful workday and you love going out to the gym or busting out on the trail and, and burning off excess energy and frustration or pursuing an addiction that's way higher ranked on the scale of, of you know, addiction from uh, substance abuse. Um, and that's, you know, you, you can't uh, you can't necessarily judge that. Uh, but I think a lot of people, especially that I've coached and they send me their wonderful questionnaire and it says, uh, what are your you know, goals and, and, and dreams and purpose for participating? And they'll say, I want to be a role model to my children ages 12 and 14 so they can see me cross the finish line at the Ironman. And I'm like, you know what? A 12 and a 14 year old ain't going to want to sit around for 14 they and a half care. hours and watch <laughs> that. They don't give a crap. They want cotton candy and then they want to go uh, you know, out to the movies. So don't, don't say that you have these higher goals and ideals when you're training in an obsessive compulsive manner just like kind of face it and ask yourself all right here's what's going on in my life here's what i need from uh my, my athletic training uh if i have goals then i have to use uh, you know discipline focus and resilience to not train sometimes mm -hmm. rather than that discipline that the outsiders think wow how far do you run every day oh my gosh you have so much discipline and motivation and of course we know that that kind of stuff falls into place easily and the discipline's required in my case to limit my number of high jumps in a practice session to a dozen or less because I know the world-class people don't do more than that, but I have a tendency to do 20 because on the 15th one, I didn't quite get it right. I certainly don't want to stop on a bad note. I'm like, I know I can get over that bar. I'm going to do one more and then one more after that. And then you're, you know, you're in that peak performance mindset that can easily kind of get out of hand. Same with when the slow person passes you on the trail. And of course you have to pass them back and assert your <laughs> dominance in the, in the park from some, you know, random stranger. So all these things are floating in the mix when we are making training decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is, was it high jumping that caused your foot injury? Uh, I think mainly the sprinting is, okay. it's so different. And again, I'm coming from an endurance athlete background, endurance athlete mentality in many ways. And so I have no problem if you want to call it suffering or persevering through a really difficult workout. I actually love it because it's short distance. You know, uh, I'm, I'm working on my form. It's not that pain and suffering like running a 20 miler in the heat. And so dull pain. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just like, hey, let's let's bring it on. I got two more in me. Uh, so I've had to learn, you know, to change that psychology and adopt the mindset of the the, the sprinter community, the guys I'm joking about, like Jurgen Hinkson, just goofing around at the track. And um, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of patience. There's a lot of downtime. When you're looking at, I used to watch the elites uh, work out at UCLA too, Allison Felix, multi-gold medalist, and a lot of her training partners were top in the world. And, you know, they were out there for two and a half hours every day. They're pros, they train hard. They probably put another hour in the gym in the morning. But during that two and a half hours, let me tell you, their, uh, their, uh, their step count and the complete amount of, you know, work they did 
was a tremendous amount of downtime interspersed mm-hmm. with explosive efforts. And that's the best way to train. And I think actually it's a really good way to train for us, uh, you know, genetically as humans, we need that explosive, powerful work performance, whether it's resistance training, sprinting, whatever, with extensive rest between these efforts so that they can be high quality and not be exhausting and depleting when the workout's over. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Allison Felix is definitely a great person to look at from the longevity standpoint too, when it comes to high level mm-hmm. professional athleticism. And I believe they just, did they just rename one of the stadiums after her? I think this week, something like that, I think wow. I saw, and it just reminded me of uh, what we just learned not too long ago during uh, the Olympics that, you know, she's, uh, you know, obviously found, found the right balance for, for so many years to be able to do what she's been doing. I like when she got the the text or the phone call when she was back in Los Angeles for last summer's world championships, they texted her and they said, Hey, we need you to come back to Oregon and run a leg on the four by four relay, you know, the, the final day of the meet. She's like, okay. And she came back and that was her last race. Everyone thought her last race was the, the open 400 yeah. that she participated in, uh, but she was just ready to go at a moment's notice for the USA. What a, what an amazing career. And yeah. yeah, longevity is really good thing to reflect upon because I think uh, it's possible for people to arrive on the scene and just crush some amazing performances with whatever strategy they're applying. Uh, but it might be a very short-term binge at the top, and then they're gone. Like that uh, epic article about the ultra runners. It was called um, was it called uh, Running on Empty, an outside magazine where they they mm-hmm. chronicled these guys that broke records on the ultra courses, and then um, a year later they're completely out of the sport and not even running due to the you know exhaustion of the endocrine metabolic system, and they just couldn't come back, and they didn't even know what they had. They didn't even know what was wrong with them, but they just lost all their energy. Mm-hmm. because they just went on those binges that are possible for two years. And then it's, then it's over, man. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That it's been an interesting sport to follow since I started ultra running. Cause I think like there's been a lot of growth and evolution just in the last 10 years based on how the sport has changed to some degree. And I think like in those earlier years of my career, like there, it goes on well, well before that, but you kind of had this like window of time where if you were say good enough to win the Western States 100 or podium at the Western States 100, you could sort of show up at just about any other race and probably win. So there was like this weird kind of like pre social media in a big way anyway, like, like pre real good opportunities of professional career in the sport where like the move was essentially just to go and race like hyper frequently at a high, high Mm -hmm. enough level to like win some of these like kind of more moderately to lower competitive races and then peak for something like Western States or a couple of big ones. And then at the end of the year, you could have a situation where, yeah, you ran like three or 400 milers, a handful of 50 mile, hundred K or 50 K type stuff. And then, you know, two or three years later, all of a sudden, like, yeah, you're, you, no one knows where you are anymore, wondering what happened to you. And um, since then, I think this, I think what actually ended up happening is the sport got more competitive. So Mm -hmm. now it's like, if you want to have any chance at winning the Western States 100 now, you have to be about as strategic as a professional marathoner in terms of how you lay out your calendar year. You have to do like a legit preparatory period specific to that course. And that can't always include like, you know, goofing around on other courses and things like that in the weeks leading (laughs) into the race. So um, I think we've seen some balance in the last few years with that, but uh, time will tell ultimately 
And then you got the guys like, you know, Carl Meltzer, who's been in the sport forever, has won more 100 milers than anyone else. And he's a, an interesting guy, too, because he's always been kind of relaxed about it and very mm -hmm. low volume compared to low volume in the terms of like actual structured running. I think he's probably pretty active outside of just, you know, whatever specific training he's doing. But, you know, he's not the guy who's out there, you know, putting in 30 hour training weeks or things mm -hmm. like that or trying to, you know, put ring himself dry on a on a build up to, to any given race. And he's playing speed golf too. Yeah. He's yeah. Keeping he, it real, yeah. mixing it up. I love Build, it. Building luges in the winter and playing speed golf in the summer. <laughs> I think that, uh, the, the rising level of sophistication of all sports, I don't think we appreciate how much more pressure and demand is placed on the modern athletes. And we, we like to go back and compare, um, you know, from 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 previous eras and i remember uh when, when tiger woods was just coming on and, and winning all the tournaments austin texas's own tom kite the great yeah. legend of old-time golf uh tiger dropped out of a, a tournament he was promising to play in because he said he was exhausted from bursting onto the scene having yeah. all this media attention being non-stop in the spotlight and tom kite gave the quip like when i was 21 i don't ever remember being exhausted i wasn't never tired it's like <laughs> dude you didn't have 500 journalists in the press conference yeah. swarming you every second of your life to where you have no privacy no you know no normal situation and all the intensity of winning these tournaments today there's no comparison to the guys who are out there teeing it up and playing every single week back in the 60s we'd drive from in our cars from from tournament to tournament okay that's fine but now man the, the game is on and like especially when uh, you're mentioning that ultra example there's a huge difference when there's a guy on your shoulder from having a 12 minute lead and cruising in the last, you know, the last couple mm -hmm. hours. Yeah. Yeah. It's an, it's always interesting when a sport like grows fast. Cause you definitely see, you, you know, there's people that kind of pay the price, I think. And there's also a lot of learning and development that ultimately is probably better once mm -hmm. some more data gets collected and the right path forward kind of presents itself a little bit clearer than maybe it was when we're just all kind of throwing stuff up against the wall and seeing what sticks. Yeah, I, I I wish uh, you know I, I raced in triathlon so long ago without social media, without a, a good exchange of um, what the other athletes were doing. But we did have the grassroots uh, method of you know talking about training anytime we interacted with people from from all over the world. And so mm -hmm. you just have your own database going in your head. And it finally it, it took me a long time, but I finally realized that the um, the desire or the inclination to compare your training to your competitors is, is so natural and we're drawn to it and we, we want to measure up in every possible way. But I learned that I wasn't anywhere close to what some of these guys were doing because they were genetic freaks or they just built differently or whatever. And they'd wake up every day and literally train all day. And I just wasn't that type of person. I could never do it. And I'd go for, you know, a couple few days at a high level. And then I needed a couple few days off and it was so confusing to me and frustrating, but then here I am racing at my best and going neck and neck with these guys that train twice as much as me, literally. So you brought up Carl's example or, or any athlete who figures out, um, what works for them and sticks with that and continues to refine and experiment, but just, we need to seek the information and then we need to filter it very carefully and figure out what's work, what's working best for us at all times. Although there is one, uh, common attribute of every elite athletes training program. Do you know what it is, Zach? What's that? 
consistency <laughs> they believe <laughs> that this is the best training for them oh yeah <laughs> so if you're talking about a top athlete who's winning and at the highest level of their sport whether it's steph curry and his dribbling warm-ups before every game that if you get there early you can watch his amazing elaborate warm-up routine i don't know why every nba player isn't doing that because he, he's pretty darn good with the ball but he thinks that's very important and that's what works for him and same with the guy who's in the locker room listening to his beats until 14 minutes before tip-off, that works for him. So if they're performing at the highest level, um, that's really an interesting uh, psychological insight that that deep belief that what they're doing is working. And I think it's important to, to trump this idea out now because we get so obsessed with science and we have so much commentary about the research and the the, the proven results of uh, you know this 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 scientific method. Um, I prefer to uh, take that in, but I also want to look at what Jakob Ingebrigtsen is doing in Norway because he's the greatest track and field runner in the world. And so, whatever the science says in comparison to his training program right now, that needs to be weighed very heavily. And sometimes we kind of put science at the top. And all this, well, that's just anecdotal evidence that Zach Bitter ran six minutes and 47 seconds per mile with his training. You know, where's the science? Well, it's like, I don't need the science. I just need to see you cross the finish line and, and look at your time. You know what I mean? That's that's the science right there. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, too. And I think um, one person I've really enjoyed following more recently, although he's been around sharing this sort of stuff to some degree for a while, is Steve Magnus, because he's sort of in a, he's that guy who... Um, you know, just did it a little too aggressively at one point and cost himself potentially a professional career in the process by when things started getting, when the wheels got wobbly, he doubled down. And obviously, as we've been kind of laying out here for you know, a bit now, that's not the move. Like when your body's <laughs> saying, hey, <laughs> you know, there's this second half of the equation called rest and recovery. That's what I need right now to get better. And then you double down on the activities that got you to that fatigue state um, you know, that's going to cost you in the long run, if not the short term. So like, I thought like his, his most recent book now, um, it's called do hard things. Mm. And I thought he was like, okay, he's the perfect guy to write this because he crossed the line of when doing hard things too frequently and too aggressively made him pay. So he must have a good outlook at like where the dosage is of mm. still doing enough hard things to both have the confidence and just the you know, the experience to really, you know, feel like you can push yourself on competition day if that's your, your, your desire. Um, but also knows like, okay, if you want to do hard things for the long term or in any real capacity, you have to also make sure you're checking all the boxes along the way versus just, you know, doing the whole, like, you know, burn the candle on both ends, massive training blocks, like parroting whoever's doing the most and then adding one more huh. type of a mentality. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we, we have to uh, kind of acknowledge that we get a certain payoff for going out there and let's say pushing ourselves too hard or whatever you're going to shake your head and lament. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm looking at my foot surgery like, you idiot, what, how, did, how did this happen? You know, and uh, when I went to the doctor, they said, how long has this been bothering you? And I go, oh, about nine months. And they go, what? <laughs> nine, so where were you nine months, months ago? <laughs> I'm like, well, what's the big deal? Like, I have a lot of stuff that 
bugged me for nine months or 18 months. You know, my left shoulder has been bugging me for 18 months. And they were so shocked that I was dealing with it for that long. And I'm like, what do you mean? That's like, <laughs> that, that doesn't seem like anything to me. Uh, but that was a, a nice awakening too, to think, hey, when you're, you know, digging yourself a hole, whether it's, you know, fatigue, how long you've been tired at the workplace at 2 p.m. Oh, about nine months. Well, <laughs> you know, your training's messed up, buddy. Uh, so I think, um, you know, realizing that there's an allure to, you know, going to the extreme and pushing yourself hard, especially for the type A, highly motivated, goal-oriented person. And, you know, checking that box every day to say that you had amazing accomplishment because you put in this many miles or you did this much work. And we have to kind of uh, realize that, we're, there's a payoff there and then see if we want to seek a bigger payoff, which is competitive excellence and, and doing things correctly and following the process and, and using that discipline and, and experience to, for example, not make the same mistakes twice and all that great stuff, which is, you know, a sign of, I think you can use your fitness, your athletic pursuits as a vehicle for personal growth if you do it correctly or alternatively, you can use it as a vehicle for your frailties, your insecurities, and those things playing out in an extreme and, and very graphic manner. That's why it, it can, you know, if you can get control of your uh, your ego in training, you might be able to do that better in uh, real life, in your relationships, workplace, everything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good point. So are you still rehabbing the foot or is it, are you back to yeah. getting some activity in? I'm, I'm getting activity. It's really interesting. I'm, I don't know how many listeners have been through sort of like a, a surgical procedure or something different than your typical overuse injury, but um, the patience required is amazing because, you know, one day it'll, it'll feel worse again. So if I'm mm -hmm. looking at a, a growth chart, you know, it's not a graph straight up, like it's better and better every single day. And in 14 more days, I'll be running back at my, no, no, it's all patience. And um, you know, sensitivity and nuance. And so it's, it's a nice uh, experience to appreciate and do what the physical therapist says and all that great stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How long has it been since the surgery? Uh, I had it, um, you know, two months ago. And when I went in for this minor heel procedure where they use a laser and they scrub off the bone spur, they said, yeah, it's, it's three to six months of no running. And I'm like, yeah, bullshit. That's so long. Come on. People have like knee reconstruction. Uh, the guy in the Super Bowl last year, I was amused because uh, I had, a, I had a, um, a hamstring problem that was preventing me from running for many months. And they're like, 11 and a half weeks ago, he had complete reconstructive surgery on his MCL. And here he is playing in the Super Bowl. And I'm like, wait, that's less time than, you know, yeah. than I've been out for a guy who blew his knee to bits. Uh, so, um, you know, it's all individual and personal, but, um, you know, looking first thing in the morning, how does it feel before you start to, uh, to mess around? That's my, that's my new benchmark. Mm -hmm. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode sponsors are my friends at LMNT Electrolytes. They have a wide range of electrolyte supplements and are currently offering listeners to this podcast a free sample pack with purchase. If you are interested in checking them out and letting them know that you came to them through here, you can go to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO or to the show sponsor landing page, which is just zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Links to that are in the show notes as well. So what have you been doing to kind of fill that void to some degree, or has it been something where you're recognizing that that void doesn't necessarily need to be filled to the degree it was before? 
oh, it's great to get back on the bike more. You know, I, I still love sprinting and jumping as my main goals, but now I'm, I'm, I'm bashing out some good indoor uh, bike interval sessions and, and going outdoors. And it's really kind of fun to see your fitness pick up in a new sport because I haven't been really doing much. And my first few bike rides were just giant pools of blood in my quads, barely able to pedal, you know, <laughs> like, wow, I thought I was in shape. And that's so funny about cross training. Like, you know, there's so many benefits to cross training. Um, but there's also, you could also say not really. So if you want to prepare for an ultra marathon trail run, um, go ahead and do your box jumps in the gym and your rope climb and your heavy squats. But um, there's no, nothing compares to, um, you know, sport specific training if you have mm -hmm. a particular goal. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I remember like maybe one of my first, like very clear lessons of that was I was, I think I was just out of college and I was starting to kind of really kind of continue running outside of that. And I had a pretty good training block going. I was pretty proud of how fit I was getting in the middle of winter. And then I went cross country skiing with my dad for an hour. And the next day I was just wrecked. Like, I was just like, <laughs> what is going on here? It's like, I should be able to tolerate 60 minutes of cross country skiing, but you use some muscle, some stabilizer thing differently. And then it lets you know that it was not getting used with the activity that you were trying to perfect. So yeah. And there's a balance there because obviously you can't address everything and be great at one thing and also a jack of all trades um, or a well-rounded fitness person, maybe to some degree. So there's maybe a fork in the road, I guess, there for certain points for certain people. But um, yeah, I think like generally speaking, though, I think the trends in the fitness community of just like overall fitness and maybe not so much being married to one specific thing is kind of a cool, promising outlook where you know, someone might want to do a triathlon, but once they finish it, they're not going to be like, you know, 24 seven triathlon. They might decide, okay, well now I'm going to go and I'm going to just try to get like really strong in the gym and do some strength work for a while and just explore that world and just kind of keep themselves more, more available as a, like a multi-discipline, multi-sport person. Yeah. It's so cool. We were just talking the other day with Mark Sisson and the, the primal health coach folks about this idea of the, you know, the ultimate all around athlete and the CrossFit games has been proudly promoting this theme for a long time. Uh, but when I watch the CrossFit games, I see these guys who are incredible gymnasts and incredible with the, uh, the, the strength training routines that are commonly done in the gym, especially the CrossFit gym. Um, but does that represent the ultimate athlete? Uh, could they, um, could they swim uh, a mile, uh, you know, if they were dropped off a boat and getting back to shore and Mark's like, you know, in the very first CrossFit games, they dumped these guys at the pier and they had to swim in and a bunch of guys couldn't even make it to the shore <laughs> because they, you know, they didn't necessarily, but, um, they, they thought that would be one of the uh, requisite skills that would be cool. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, we can, we can talk all day about what would be, um, you know, the award for the ultimate athlete, the decathlete has a good nomination there. I mm -hmm. think the NBA players show the amazing uh, range of incredible human endurance to play a hundred games and run that far on the court. And then also be so explosive and so skilled with dribbling and passing. And um, those guys are at the very top of my list. And I also like these um, YouTube sensations where you try to deadlift 
you know, 500 pounds and run a sub five minute mile or the variations where the the guy in England was doing, um, I think he ran uh, 30 miles after doing uh, a bunch of deadlifting or something like that. And it's like the the complete opposite ends of the spectrum. If you can be competent in two things like that, wow, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And uh, it's, it's fun to watch that stuff too. And it's sort of, you know, for someone who is focused on one discipline at the moment, like it is always a little bit of a kind of like grass is greener over there. Maybe it'd be more fun <laughs> to do that. Yeah. So I don't know. I think it's uh, yeah, I, th- I see value in both sides, but uh, I think you do want to keep an open mind because like, you know, there'll be a day where um, I'm no longer competitive. And at that point, I'll have to ask myself, how much do I want to do what I'm doing now when there's not that you know, award at the end of potentially running my fastest time anymore and things like that. And I think that opens up a little bit of a door to maybe explore some other things when, when that incentive isn't there any longer. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, people used to ask me all the time after I finished my racing career, I was on the pro circuit for nine years in triathlon and they would ask, well, do you still do triathlons just for fun? And I go, no. <laughs> and they're like, why not? And I'd say, well, do you want to go back to high school just for fun? Or is you sort of, have you, have you, have you been there and done that? And it's like, at a certain point, you've been there, especially performing at a high level where you're devoting all this time and your heart and soul and completely immersed into the, the, you know, the compelling peak performance goal, especially when you're doing something that, you know, takes a lot of time endurance. And so that's the last thing I would ever want to do. Not that I have anything against it. It's just sort of, um, you know, you, you've checked your, you, you've got mm-hmm. that stamp in your passport. Now it's time to to go somewhere else. Now, I also have peers that I race with um, over 30 years ago that are still going strong. And it's so amazing and a beautiful thing for me to see Pete Kane up in San Francisco Bay Area coaching a whole bunch of uh, amateur triathletes and participating right alongside them with all these amazing workouts and destination trips to the races. And uh, Ken Glaw, another competitor of mine back in the 80s and early 90s, he did 30 Hawaii Ironmans in a row. So this is world championships where you have to qualify. Mm -hmm. Every year, he had to be in top Ironman shape to get a spot in the 40-plus division and then the 50-plus division. So to be in, in locked in, at that level for 30 years is something I can't even imagine. I thought nine years was too long for me <laughs> racing at that level on the pro circuit. But um, it, I think it shows that whatever is still exciting you and, and bringing you joy and passion. And of course, the guys who are in it for the long game, they're slowing down every year. So what? It's like, um, you know, you don't rewind the clock, but at least they have age groups where you can have, you know, something to aspire to that that turns on your competitive juices. And mm-hmm. in my case, like, look, I'm I'm 5'11", 165 pounds. I'm in pretty good shape, but I'm not an Olympic high jumper who are generally 6'3", and 151 pounds, you know, and I don't have spring. I can't dunk. I never could dunk. I got cut from the high school basketball team. And um, so I'm not a a genetically adapted high jumper as I might have been as an endurance athlete. Uh, But I, I have so much passion and joy for the incredible challenge of the sport with whatever genetic limitations I have. And now the good thing is, um, I think 
the the war of attrition there's not that many guys <laughs> over 55 who can still jump over the bar so i'm i'm a i'm a highly ranked usa I'm, I'm number three ranked in the usa i was number one in 2020 and i'm just hanging in there man and waiting for more guys to drop off because i'm going to keep training and um interestingly the record the world record for the 95 and over high jump is 0 0.97 meters so okay. it's about three feet yeah. And if you look at a typical nice king size bed frame, um, all I have to do is jump into bed when I'm 95 <laughs> to break the world record in the high jump. So that's one of my one of my goals I'm looking for. It's like step one there is making it to 95, I guess. And then if exactly. you if you make it to 95, then it's like, can you hurdle that bed? <laughs> yeah, there was a guy uh, that did the pen relays, the famous track meet, 30,000 spectators in the stands, a big thing every year. And he ran the 100 meters at age 100. You can find him on YouTube mm -hmm. and um, oh my God, what a beautiful thing. Yeah. Uh, I think he did like 28 seconds, which is no joke. He's, he's moving down the track, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and guess what? He didn't have a lot of competition in the hundred plus division and good for him. I mean, what a, yeah. what a great celebration that he can just show up on the track and, and uh, you know, put on his singlet and, and go down the lane. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's like just the thought of that is like in, my first thought is like, yeah, you should get an award if you're a hundred and, you know, moving around at any capacity. So like the fact that you don't have competition at that point is a testament to you doing things right for so long that no one else was even able to show up, much less compete against you. And yeah, I find that stuff really interesting. Um, so is uh high jump something you're going to, yeah, it sounds like you're going right back to that as soon as you kind of get everything sorted with the foot. Oh yeah, I'm I'm studying the videos. I'm doing all the your alternative training. You know, I can I can do uh, strength training and, and great things without bothering my foot. And interestingly, I can also do my sprinting drills, like a high knee drill or a skipping drill, with zero pain on the zero to ten scale. Um, but I just actually, it, and you can't um, you can't believe it, but even walking normally took mm, you know six weeks because when we're pushing off with a proper walking stride, we're putting a lot of uh, demand on the Achilles tendon. I didn't even realize it like, you know, um, but it took a long time just to walk and then to run is like a huge deal. Uh, however, I can do really aggressive uh, skipping drills and because the foot's remaining in a dorsiflex position, it's not being asked to push off. So it's fun to kind of work around these injuries. And yeah, I can't wait to I can't believe we've mentioned high jump six times already on the show transcript. <laughs> I'm going to go for seven or eight and then we'll be, then we'll move on to the next topic. <laughs> yeah. Is there any other stuff that you're, you're training for other than the high jump or is it just high jump for the most part? Yeah. High jump and 400 meters are my favorite events. Okay. And oh, what's shocking is in the 55 and over division, you look on the world rankings and there's a bunch of guys, especially from Australia and, um, and New Zealand, they're running like, 52.8, 53.6. And that is so fast yeah. for, for reference listeners. That's like a high school varsity track team. Uh, you know, the anchor man on the mile relay might come and run a 52.8. I mean, so mm -hmm. it's like a very, very fit individual, even at the advanced stage. I don't know why the high jump isn't as competitive because I'm way better in high jump than 400 meters, but I just love that. I'd love to be a sprinter too, but then there's guys that are super fast and I'm, I'm way out of my league, but 
uh, you know, it's the, it's the personal goals and the personal challenge. And when I'm in an empty high school stadium practicing the high jump and I clear the bar, I will scream and have this sense of joy in my body that is the exact same level of intensity of crossing the finish line, winning a race on the pro circuit back when and getting interviewed by ESPN and people are there clapping and it, it, it seemed like a big deal in real life. And now, even though there's no one there and I had to hop the fence and bring my own high jump standards because they took them away during COVID, um, it, it still feels like the Olympic stadium with 90,000 people there to me inside. And that's what I think the magic is that I, I try to promote and celebrate that we can all find this where uh, I think it was uh, Dr. Anna Lemke. She was a guest on my BRAD podcast. She's the author of Dopamine Nation. And she gave this great quote. I said, Anna, you just gave me the secret to life in, in, in one quote. It was from a, a, an article she wrote. She goes, what was that? She didn't know what I was talking about. And she said, um, uh, the, the things that you pursue in your life can take on epic proportions, but it doesn't mean that you have to climb to the top of the mountain. And think about it, whatever you're doing, like I like to do uh, clay sculptures of my dog. So I'm an artist, but I only do dogs. I'd never do anything else. And I've done probably 50 dogs and it's so much fun. And I'm actually pretty good at it. If I showed you one of my sculptures, it'd be like, wow, that's pretty good, Brad. But I can't <laughs> do anything else. I have no artistic talent whatsoever. But to me, it's just, I, I'm so immersed in this wonderful challenge of making the dog perfect. And I'll mm -hmm. ask the dog to sit on the ground and stay so I can look at it more. <laughs> and it's just, it's just epic. It's epic, but it's, you know, it's silly too. Just like some guy who climbed over the fence at the high school track to practice high jumping. Um, but if, if we miss out on that, that's when I think we drift into the couch and uh, use the button to watch the red zone and the, the six different NFL games at once. And of course, we all deserve a chance to kick back, relax, consume entertainment, binge on Netflix, go to the movies, have some shitty popcorn, whatever you want to do to enjoy your life. But I'm really in favor of, you know, finding that competitive edge and keeping it no matter what. I should mention my dad was a great uh, role model here because he was a champion golfer his whole life all the way up to when he stopped playing at age 95. So he would shoot under his age every time he played over 2000 times in total. He has what we believe is a world record for the most strokes under his age when he was 71. Wow. I mean, when he was, when he was 87, he shot a 71. And then when he was 92, he shot a 76 on a championship course, 16 strokes under his age. Mm -hmm. And he loved the game so much and he would practice and study the videos. And, you know, he, he was like immersed in this until, uh, you know, finally he was too tired to go out to the golf course. And um, it was just really cool to watch because um, it wasn't like we're out there, um, you know, shooting the breeze and uh, eating potato chips and smoking a cigar. It was like, no, I'm 148 yards away from the pin. I'm going to pull my four iron and take a nice practice swing. And it was a very, you know, passionate and compelling challenge for him and he mm -hmm. played at a really high level so it was like he was a master of the game for his whole life yeah it's incredible i mean shooting in the 70s at any age is incredible so. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> oh think my about gosh that. yeah yeah it, that's actually an interesting topic in and of itself too is golf because i think people oftentimes just think like why aren't these guys playing well into their you know well past the average athlete age and to some degree they do but like I think again, Tiger Woods maybe showed us this where like he's revamped his swing multiple times during his career to just take care of issues that were created by the amount of torque he's generating from that swing itself. 
in some cases. So it's like, there's that balancing act, even with a sport like golf, where, you know, if things aren't quite perfectly aligned, or if you're, you go really hard in training to a degree at which your body is overexposed to a certain mechanic. And it's like, even things can break down in, in that. So, you know, why wouldn't they in sports with much higher impact? Oh, geez. I mean, Tiger overtrained his ass off to the detriment of his career period. Mm -hmm. And he, maybe you can't separate those performance qualities that make him number one greatest athlete of all time, in my opinion, uh, from the guy who just, you know, he, he basically, uh, as the tell all books will describe in detail, he was basically up at 7am. He supposedly ran a 5k in 19 to 21 minutes every day, like his morning run. And I'm like, I don't know, I'd like to see that. I'd like to see him hang at that pace every day. But then he was at the range, then he was in the gym, then he had lunch, then he was back out on the course to play golf on the course. And every day he trained harder than any other golfer um, and, you know, broke his body down uh, in, in, the, um, in the process. I think Jack Lane also, who made it to 98 years old, but I think he took at least 10 years off his life, maybe 15 from overtraining. And I had the privilege of uh, interacting with him personally when I was a kid. We, we played golf at the same course, and I I had a, a golf round with him one time, and I'd see him on the practice range every day hitting balls for three or four or five hours every day. And that was after his morning workout of two and a half hours. So, um, you know, he might have made it to 108 or 115 um, if he didn't have that on button that was just so extreme. Stuck on. Certainly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah it's, it's interesting because it seems like those type of guys also are the same guys who sleep like four or five hours a night. <laughs> yeah. What's up with that, man? Oh my gosh. I think my ambitious training at this age requires an extra hour or an hour and a half a night. And so those times when I'm not exercising, like I had COVID, I finally got nipped. I made it to 2023. And then January 1st, I got tested with COVID. I'm like, what is this, man? I thought I was immune, you know, um, but I didn't, I didn't do any exercise for six or seven days. And my whole sleep cycle was so different. You know, it was just like a lighter sleep, waking up super early, which I always aspire to do, but I can't seem to get my ass out of bed unless I get eight and a half to nine to nine and a half hours sleep, especially after um, some hard training. I don't know if you report the same thing, but um, there's definitely there's definitely a sleep requirement that elevates when you're challenging your body. Yeah, no, for sure. I think when when I'm in an off season, I'm probably all right between seven and eight hours in most cases, but when I'm in the full swing of it, I need to average around eight and a half. I can have like a couple of days where it dips under eight, but then I'm going to, I'm going to counter that with a nine and a half or a couple of nine and a half. And it's going to average out to around eight and a half, almost like clockwork when I'm in the full swing of things. Oh gosh. I'm so, I'm so glad to hear that, Zach. I, I, I feel insecure all the time. Like what am I doing <laughs> sleeping this long? And I always, I have to take a nap frequently where it's like, I have a desperate need to take a nap. Is something wrong with me? But then I wake up and it feels like morning at, at yeah. two 30 and I go and I crank away for the rest of the day. So I, I don't mm -hmm. think I'm uh, dying of a terrible disease, but yeah, that, that sleep requirement. I know there's some individuality there, but I also think we, we snuff out our optimal potential with the mobile device or the, you know, long-term engagement with the screen in the evening. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we're, we're going down from level nine to level seven yeah. without even knowing it. Yeah, no, it's interesting stuff. And I know, um, I know another thing you've played around a lot over the, over your career, uh, is your nutrition. So what is your current interest or protocol with that these days? Oh, thanks, Zach. Uh, I think the first thing that pops into my head is like, the more I study this, 
and the deeper I become immersed into it, um, the more confused and the, the less I uh, realize that I know. And it gets a little frustrating when we um, cross-reference my deep immersion into this, having written books and, and you know, mm-hmm. lived and breathed this stuff for so long um, with the, you know, the state of the average person who's busy working on other things and doesn't have time for the deep immersion and to sort out the science and the, the crappy science and the propaganda. And so it's easy to get confused. It's easy to get into these um these rabid factions where um, veganism is equated with moral superiority. And of course you're going to not get cancer because we know that red meat causes cancer and, <laughs> and eating too many eggs raises your cholesterol and all this nonsense that we that's been pounded into our brains for years and decades to the extent that, and, and of course it's infiltrated the medical community. And so we look to resources who don't know anything about nutrition and cutting edge uh, research and, and results uh, and, and, you know, we're, we're, we're taking advice from people that don't know what they're talking about. And then we're, um, also hearing from people that, you know, have made whatever topic their life's work and finding out that there's the very respectable and highly educated people that have a severe difference of opinion on stuff. So mm-hmm. my, you know, ambition right now is to take a deep breath back up a few steps, especially when talking to, you know, real people listening and try to find some common ground and some sensibility as opposed to um, banging these loud drums and saying, you know, I'm, I'm on se- week seven of keto and I feel mm. awesome. And my blood levels have gone from 1.7 to 2.3. Who gives a crap? Because when I, uh, you know, interact with, let's say my childhood buddies, we get together every couple months in Los Angeles, where we're from five of us. And we talk about life and we enjoy and relax and I'll be sitting with these guys. And of course the conversation will come to, so Brad, you're working on another book. What's it about? You know, <laughs> give, me, give me the quick synopsis or one time my friend showed up and he walks over with the plate of nachos and he goes brad nachos healthy yes or no (laughs) (laughs) like where'd you get them what kind of cheese is that is that the squirty stuff or was it you know a a raw aged cheese that was melted on there with care and but it was so funny where he wants the yes or no answer to the nachos and it was a real revelation for me because um you know this is where a lot of us are at. We just want some simple solutions. We do have an interest in healthy living and avoiding disease, uh, but that's when you can start to get confusing the more you get into it. So in my in my backpedaling here, I want to start the conversation by stating that the processed modern foods are a huge enemy to human health, and we need to get rid of those, and we need to fight this battle hard. It's not about everything in moderation, and you can have a cheat day and go get your ding-dongs, and it's okay because Monday morning you're going to start over. We need to fight this battle against the the evil forces that are still pushing this stuff onto kids and adults and say, I'm going to you know live a clean life and try to eat wholesome, natural, nutritious foods that are easy to digest. So if we can start the conversation there and not talk any further until you've cleaned out your shelves from these little tidbits and treats and things that have the refined industrial seed oils, which of course are widely uh, acknowledged to be probably the worst thing that you can put into your body uh, for a human and all the processed foods that are made with them. And unfortunately, most restaurants of all levels, starting with fast food, of course, and then the medium range chain restaurants and even fine dining 
are using these seed oils to prepare uh, their sauces, their toppings, to cook the meals in the seed oils, such that you're getting a big dose of those, even if you go out and pay $38 for a steak and um, you know some nice uh, organic locally grown broccoli that was fried in seed oils. <laughs> and so you have to, or, or you know, an omelet at the beautiful omelet house that was, was cooked in the pan with seed oils. And so you have to be really, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, militant and vigilant, especially dining out. But of course, when you're shopping and choosing which store to go to and a uh, wonderful Whole Foods Market founded in Austin, Texas, one of my favorite places to go. But guess what? The store is still somehow, I don't understand why it's still littered with seed oils, not only in their hot, hot bar, but on the shelves, you can buy organic canola oil and um, different, different products with um, this crap still in there. And that really breaks my heart because I'm kind of trusting due to their marketing messaging that they've done a lot of hard work for me to find the best products and keep out the crap. And they even have statements to that effect, you know, on the website, our mission statement is the cleanest, most natural, most locally grown, whatever, whatever. And so um, it, it's up to the individual to try to choose as cleanly as possible and enjoy the experience of eating healthy, natural foods. And then we can talk about more details where I'm adding back more carbs this year and seeing how the, how the results go. But I think we got to start with big picture insights. Yeah, no, you're, you're spot on. I think it's like, if there's something we can all agree on, it's that like highly processed, like super palatable, like low nutrient value, high calorie foods are going to be the thing that leads most people down the wrong path, regardless of whatever dietary like protocol they're trying to put in place. And I actually like can't help but like shake my head at this this in general because it's like if you th if you think of any big food food manufacturer like they don't care whether keto is popular whether vegan's popular whether standard American diet is popular because they're going to be able to bastardize any of those diets if they want to they just need to know which one's popular enough that they can put the marketing on it and gen and then have a whole new batch of products to sell you like it's pretty it's pretty simple like formula for them. Um, so it's like every time there's a new, like uprising of a certain type of way of eating, that's going to be like that all the celebrities are doing and everyone's going to drop 30 pounds in 10 days or whatever it happens to be, uh, you know, the, the food industry is probably looking at that, like, great, sweet. We can just roll out this new campaign and just build it around that instead. And, you know, it's, uh, it ultimately ends up putting in the same position where from a satiety standpoint, if we're looking mm -hmm. at the general population, like you can make keto, like very unsatiable in terms of like how many calories you're going to get in terms of how full you feel just like you can vegan and anything else like that so um anytime there's a new a new protocol that rolls out there it's like it's got like this like grace period of like maybe a year to two years <laughs> before the food industry gets a hold of it and decides to like roll out some convenient foods for it <laughs> pounce pounce uh you know another <laughs> guy that's uh making an interesting argument now is Dr. Lane Norton. He's a mm -hmm. PhD a scientist in the nutrition world and a big performer in, in bodybuilding and powerlifting. And he says the, the real problem is energy toxicity. So eating too much food and not burning enough energy. Mm -hmm. And he goes so far as to uh, kind of not be too worried, whether it's the seed oils you're eating or too much sugar or too many uh, carbs or whatever. He just, uh, puts it in, that's a nice big picture perspective for the individual to reflect and say, hmm, I should be burning more calories in my day and I should be eating less food. <laughs> and that's uh, an interesting reflection because some of the research gets distorted 
from that starting point, and that's especially the cholesterol story that we've been told for decades, um, the cholesterol and saturated fat driving heart disease has been uh, prompted or facilitated by uh, individuals who are consuming too many processed foods, especially too much sugar, raising your triglycerides, elevating your insulin, and then allowing cholesterol and saturated fat to do bad things to the body. But if we start with this idea that energy toxicity is the big problem, mm -hmm. um, that's how the, you know, the Twinkie diet works. Have you heard of these uh, or the potato diet? Like there was a yeah. guy on the internet, he, he, did, he went on the Twinkie diet and he lost 25 pounds because all he ate was Twinkies. Of course, it's not sustainable or not. Right. Don't try this at home. Nevertheless, when this guy loses 25 pounds on the Twinkie diet, all of his blood work improves dramatically. His mm -hmm. heart disease risk, his inflammatory markers, his liver enzymes, everything gets better just because he's now eating in, of course, temporary, right? Your body's going to mm -hmm. uh, mess up and, and react to a starvation diet of just Twinkies. Um, but the point is made that if you can just get away from this overfeeding and under moving, you're going to dramatically improve your health perhaps to a greater extent than going on uh, any extreme diet imaginable. It's just get get off your ass and, you know, walk around the neighborhood every evening and you're going to get, you know, a huge, huge pat on the back and um, your NutriSense continuous glucose monitor is going to show better results regardless yeah. of what you ate. And that's, um, that's a, another, uh, you know, a starting point that anyone can embrace and, and just kind of relax and say, okay, this is going to be something that's easy to do. And, and, you know, you can turn the corner and have dramatic improvement in health without sweating it and having to read the next six books on the, the dietary fads of the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, um, one thing that Lane and I think Alan Argon also says that I, is, is like really, I think something people should consider whenever they're deciding a way of eating is like, what's the diet after the diet? <laughs> and it's like, if, if what you're doing is something that like, it's like the Twinkie, Twinkie diet that you might be able to like white knuckle your way to 30 days on, but what are you going to do once you get to there? Mm. Cause if you just go back to what you're doing before that, you're going to go right back to where you were at some point it might be like incremental day by day, but you'll get back there. So yeah, really asking yourself, like, I mean, I'm all for experimenting with different ways of eating, but, um, while you're doing that outside of just tracking, whatever it is you're doing. You should also be thinking about, okay, is this something I could realistically do mm. for a year, two years, three years, the rest of my life? Or if I can't, is this something that is just going to ultimately lead me to a spot where I do make adaptations? And what are those going to be? I think a lot of times people aren't necessarily looking past whatever kind of goal they have of, um, you know, weight, weight loss or muscle gain, whatever it happens to be, and not really thinking about like what, what happens when they get to that point or, mm. And it's, it's interesting though. Yeah. To think about, cause there is just an endless list of things you can do. So that also complicates it. <laughs> yeah. And I think if you, if you, you know, strictly eliminate processed foods and go to natural nutritious foods that are easy to digest. And I put that little caveat in there for people familiar with the, the, the animal based movement where we're second guessing, even these highly regarded plant foods that are supposed to be the centerpiece of healthy eating. So your green smoothie in the morning and then your salad and then your stir fry could potentially be causing problems in certain people, even though they do have health properties and they're wholesome and natural. So if we say nutrient dense, easy to digest foods, um, if you can stick with that goal and eat to satiety at all times and, and to pleasure and enjoyment, um, your body's going to do a great job regulating your caloric intake 
and your energy levels and get good at burning energy internally, like being a good fat burner. So you can be uh, athletic and perform and, you know, not be beholden to quick sugary snacks to get you through the day. That's going to be the magic that actually makes it easy and sustainable. It's just a matter of getting away from the foods that are interfering with your body's own ability to process energy internally. And those would be the processed sugars and the oils and the all the processed grains and processed foods, because basically what happens is there, uh, you release uh, endotoxin into the bloodstream, you have this inflammatory response, and you interfere with the fat burning mechanisms, especially when you're consuming seed oils. And so you become dependent on shitty outside calories to get through the day, rather than effortlessly burning body fat and all those glorious stories that we hear or making ketones as needed for your brain and feeling alert and energized. That stuff all goes out the window when you're consuming crappy foods. And boy, turning the corner, that's when people have an amazing health awakening where they can you know, enjoy meals, eat as much as they want, and uh, have, have no problem even you know, make progress reducing excess body fat without the struggle and the suffer of uh, depriving uh, day after day until, until the now what, or what's the next diet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Brad, uh, anything else you want to chat about or, um, have you laid it all out here for us today? Well, I'm uh, happy we got to talk about the simplicity of, of cleaning up your diet. Yeah. And then uh, I did mention that, you know, that activity requirement and especially to athletic minded audience, uh, like listening to human performance outliers. One thing that I notice is when we're deep into the, uh, you know, the pursuit of goals and, and putting in those great workouts, um, sometimes we can drift into the category of not that active for the rest of the day. And, you know, we're just recovering today because we ran 10 yesterday. And so it's like, okay, wait, you ran 10 from 6 a.m. to 7.30 yesterday. And now we're looking at a clock and going through these hours of, you know, how much Netflix you've been consuming and how you've been driving around in a vehicle and sitting in an office and sitting on a couch and sleeping in a bed. And all of a sudden, you're not that active of a human, even though you did run your 10 <laughs> yesterday. And now it's 48 hours later and you're going to run three and then you're going to go off to the office again for eight hours. So I think even athletes can benefit tremendously from trying to be more active throughout the day. And one thing that's really been magical for me is this morning exercise routine that I do every single day. So outside of my workout patterns and whether I'm going to the track this day or next day, or whether I have an injury or whatever's going on, I, I drop to the ground and commence this elaborate routine of exercises every single morning as the first thing I do when I wake up. And I'm actually not that kind of person who's that consistent with anything. I kind of go with the flow with my work, my training, uh, you know, what we're going to do the rest of the day, this kind of thing. But I can count on myself every morning to start my day with activity. And for me, the routine, I do it every day. So it's not that big a deal, but it's actually pretty tough. I have a, a course on my website where people can learn more and I'll show you every single thing I do and you can pick and choose the stuff that you might like to create your own morning routine. And if you have five minutes to spare, that's great. Or 12 minutes, like I started with six years ago. But now my thing is minimum 40 minutes. And at the end, it's, you know, there's some, there's some pretty powerful things in there that are pretty strenuous. But I, since I do them every single day, it's kind of elevated my fitness platform from which I launch all of my formal workouts. So I'm a much more overall resilient person. And again, it's not uh, something that 
is too strenuous for me because of the repetition of it. So it's outside of the realm of my training log and my pattern of working out. It's just part of my life now. Mm -hmm. And if there's anything that you can do that might transform, this would be one of my votes is to start your day with a brief activity of some kind of physical movement, ideally getting outdoors. Maybe you start with just leashing up your dog and walking 10 minutes and do commit to doing it every day. And then it can build into, Hey, you walk 10 minutes, you come home and you do a set of squats and you do some lunges and then you go in and have your coffee and your breakfast and whatever you know, you've been doing to date uh, before implementing this wonderful new habit. So that's my plug for starting your day with morning exercise. Yeah, no, I love it. I think that's, uh, I'm reminded of that every time I deviate from that protocol of how meaningful that actually is just from a productivity standpoint for the rest of the day. I'm a big fan of, um, you know, it doesn't have to be running. It doesn't have to be weightlifting, but yeah, have a routine where you start your day with something that kind of creates that discipline of that expectation. Okay, now we're starting. And I think that just mm. sets everything up. Yeah. And if you ran 23 yesterday, guess what? You get a free pass. You can yeah. start your day with, uh, you know, you walk the dog that next morning. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. All right. Well, fun time, Zach. I appreciate catching up with you. I'd love to talk to you again on my B-Rad podcast yeah. and get into the, the details of your training and all the stuff you're doing. Yeah, let's do it. Um, yeah. Where can people find you and uh, your podcast and everything before I let you go? Yeah, go look at bradkearns.com. All kinds of fun stuff, including old man high jump videos and exciting <laughs> accounts of, of speed golf and all that. And uh, my podcast is the B-Rad Podcast. So if you want to start with the uh, the previous Zach Bitter interview from uh, a long time ago, we'll, we'll hit that one. And then we'll, we'll get an upgraded one for 2023. Yeah, there's probably, there's probably a video of me talking to you with long hair somewhere in there, I'm guessing. Oh, for sure, man. Rock <laughs> that. Rock that. <laughs> Awesome, Brad. Well, thanks a bunch for coming on. Thanks, buddy. And take care. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Hey, folks. Thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training, and programming. I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. -on -one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to 100 miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate, or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a Strength Athletes Guide to Endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program. So you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zackbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode.